0: This is Health Unabashed on Healthcare Now Radio, a show that spotlights and features promising health and wellness innovations, enabling a sustainable and equitable healthcare delivery and financing ecosystem. Hosted by digital health advocate, author, and global thought leader Gil Bash, the show features above-brand ideas, people, and companies that are making a difference. I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show, and join Gill as we engage select industry talent who share their insights and best practices to enable sustainable ecosystem change. On today's show, our guest is Amanda McClellan, Senior Vice President of Prevent Epidemics and Resolve to Save Lives, where she leads a global team working to accelerate progress to make the world safer from the next epidemic, while also responding to... COVID 19. And with that introduction, Gil, over to you.
1: Greg, I want to thank you. I know that this is a guest we have today that is talking about a topic very close to your heart and your great show, Pop Health Week. I want to give a call out to the program because what you and your co host are doing, Fred Goldstein, is is a very important listen. I enjoy listening, and it's a thrill to have you as co host and executive producer of health and abashed. we have a very special guest with us today i've had the privilege of of interviewing uh, amanda mcclellan before and amanda is involved in an organization she's a leader senior vice president organization called resolve to save lives and um uh, it's a it's a dedicated organization that has truly dug its heels in to address some of the most pressing public health issues our world is confronting right now. Um, Amanda um, is a person who not just out there as a, a public health expert talks the talk, she has a history of walking the walk in some of the most uh, difficult situations um, we see in terms of public health. She's been recognized for her work on the front lines of Africa, dealing with the original Ebola crisis. She's working as a care provider um, She has worked with major organizations around the world. She's been a colleague to people in the World Health Organization and Red Cross and many other organizations of note, of global clout, uh, sharing her wisdom and her expertise. And she joined Resolve to save lives because Resolve is really dealing with some of the thorniest public health issues that we're dealing with right now. We're going to explore some of those with Amanda on uh, on the program today. Amanda, it's, it's awesome, a word I don't use often on this program, awesome to see you again. And thank you for joining us on the program. You um, you are really in the forefront of so many different global issues. And I just wanna sort of drill down. Obviously, you dealt with Ebola. I'd love for you to tell a little bit about that experience and what it was like to work with such a contagious disease um, on the front lines where uh, care providers were being infected and, and flown back in quarantine, back to the United States to receive um, life-saving care. Deadly, a deadly disease. So you've been there. And and then you made this shift over to Resolve to Save Lives. And and you're dealing with a myriad of issues right now. Um, Everything from, uh, well, childhood vaccination, uh, COVID, you're dealing with non-communicable diseases um, that are killing off, you know, um, really are responsible for most of the world's deaths still, even though COVID, of course, is has killed more than 6 million people, uh, non-communicable diseases like heart disease or cancer, respiratory disease, mental health, I think, and you'll correct me, result in about 70% of the world's um, deaths. Um, and why? Why? When we have so many medicines available to us and we have so much knowledge, that's happening. It's epidemic. So it's great to have you on the program. Uh, I just want to ask you, first of all, um, a little bit about sharing, if you would, about what it was like to be in Africa during the height of Ebola. Uh,
2: uh, thanks so much for having me, Gil. I think, I mean, people reflect back on Ebola as a real crisis point, and I think it was, but, you know, I'd been into multiple disasters and and large outbreaks before that um, on the continent. I think Ebola stands out as a turning point. I think, Humanitarian response and public health in particular has used a, high, a crisis to to um, manage change and I think West Africa Ebola was one of those points for us. It really um, highlighted that an outbreak anywhere can be an outbreak everywhere in 36 hours and this idea that Ebola started in, in the deepest jungle of, of Guinea on the border and spread to three countries um, but really uh, in, uh, had cases in more than eight African countries, and, as you said, impacted healthcare workers that were then flown out. I think that the challenge for me was really that we were uh, I want to say, grinding away on the ground inch by inch, you know, really overwhelmed by the size of the crisis until one of those Western uh, healthcare workers was infected and flown back. and all of a sudden, there was a lot more attention, both in terms of media and in and and in funding. And as sad as it is to say, it was a real turning point when the first white person got Ebola, and we were able to really mobilise the resources that we need. And there was a number of uh, responders, healthcare workers, in, infected. But um, it's important to remember that we lost more than 500 local healthcare workers. Um many of them uh, ministries of health, many of them volunteers for for organizations, uh, including the Red Cross where I was working. And I think that that was the most telling point for me. I was a a nurse uh, before I I did public health and the hospital we went to support lost 54 nurses in three weeks. Uh, And these nurses were, you know, doing the day-to-day work in the maternity center, not caring for Ebola patients, but trying to keep essential healthcare services running. And I think that was the key lesson for me also as we as we started to work in COVID was these frontline, these frontline healthcare workers are so critical to not just fight COVID or fight Ebola, but to maintain essential health services. And to your point about non-communicable diseases, we continue to lose people even in these big epidemics to those non-communicable diseases. So important that we empower and protect those frontline healthcare workers um, every day, not just in the middle of these big outbreaks.
1: You're raising a really critical point. You know, I've had a lot of friends who are uh, healthcare providers, nurses, doctors, um, allied health professionals um, in institutions, um, in community health centers who are, are sharing with me that they're, um, they're feeling that they need a break from their passion. And I'm wondering, um, in light of what you just said, not only the, the physical risk, but the emotional or burnout risk that we're facing here. If you don't mind sharing a point of view, are we going to face a a healthcare worker shortage um, around the world in this country as a result of what's going on, COVID? Um, In in some regards, disregard for for good medical direction um, that sometimes is um, not coming from physicians or public health professionals, but for coming from um, other sources that, um, ask people to disregard um, either vaccination or masking, or um, or just you no, know, you're not feeling well, stay home. Are we at risk for not having sufficient numbers of healthcare workers?
2: I don't think the question is, are we at risk? It's how bad it's going to get. We already 18 million healthcare workers short across the globe, and we see people walking away from the profession every day. And if you're a young person thinking about what profession you get into, I think COVID. You know, is 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 a is a good way of of potentially turning you to to another sector. I think it's extremely challenging for lots of reasons, and the American healthcare system in particular, where providers are fighting every day for access to care in an environment that is high resource, It's extremely difficult. In in some of the places I've worked, that are lower resource, and and you do what you can with the resources that you 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 have at hand. But to be in a high resource setting like the U.S. and not be able to get access. Uh, for patients and to to for for various reasons, including insurance, but then also this misinformation and this ongoing um, uh, armchair expertise that everyone with a podcast or a Twitter account can now uh, be a voice for health science, can be an advocate for alternatives. Um, can spread misinformation, the the number of new epidemiologists that that have sprung up on Twitter. I think the monkeypox is a great example. It was a a neglected tropical disease for many, many years. There was a handful of people that worked on monkeypox. uh, And, and, you know, uh, the media is now full of people that have expertise in that space. So I think there's a number of challenges facing healthcare at the moment, and I think we need to recognise the shortage of of well-trained healthcare workers as a a global crisis, and we need to meet that challenge urgently. And I think we have to recognise misinformation as the hazard that it is. It it is um, undermining public health Not just in terms of new and novel viruses and treatments and vaccines, but undermining work that we've completed or, or, you know, tucked away years ago, polio vaccination, the first polio case coming up in New York. Uh, in the last week, polio case in London. These are diseases that we thought we had beat. We had the technology uh, and the infrastructure to, to make sure that these um, terrible diseases didn't impact communities again and, and misinformation and the move away from science is, is bringing them back to the fore.
0: And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Health Unabashed on Healthcare Now Radio. Our guest is Amanda McClellan, Senior Vice President of Prevent Epidemics and Resolve to Save Lives. I'm very concerned about what you just said and appreciate
1: it. You now, I was the generation, the first generation to stand on, uh, as a child, a mile long line outside a public school where we were um, we were grateful. We finally arrived at a table with uh, with um dedicated nurses around the table giving us as children a, a sugar cube and um a, and to get the vaccine and obviously you know I grew up in a generation that was terrorized by polio um and to your point we thought we had eradicated polio like we to some extent a more exotic disease like onchocerciasis river blindness uh, you Now, we've we've spent decades Trying to eradicate in many places of the world, Africa, South America, Asia, uh, river blindness, um, and and now all of a sudden we're seeing polio again. Um, you're you're a public health professional. You work around the world. You're uh, trained in the trench trenches nurse. Um, could you reflect a little bit about the anxiety of parents to um, so keep their children away from vaccination. It, it seems to be on the climb. Am I correct? Or, or am I just imagining that we have a, we kind of have a new public health crisis we thought we had gotten over decades ago. I mean, polio vaccination was a given. Mumps or rubella vaccination was a given. Now I, I think parents are looking at it almost like it's voluntary.
2: Yeah, very much so. I think I think there's a, a number of different pockets here. We, we definitely uh, have a new crisis of, of childhood vaccination um, decreasing across the globe for various reasons. COVID has driven a decrease in access to vaccinations and we definitely have pockets, especially um, uh, there's some interesting reports coming out of Africa and, and the real focus from WHO there to catch up on vaccines. But we increasingly have pockets in high income, high... Um, high socioeconomic areas not just of the US but in Australia and England and other uh, other places and i think to your point about this being voluntary i really believe that it is being driven by by two different things one is the risk perception gap so as you said your your generation was terrorized by polio the risk was imminent and and the risk posed by vaccine was minuscule compared to what you'd seen in terms of how polio affected communities and i think there's a whole uh, generation, uh, generation and a half of people that haven't seen a measles case, that haven't seen diphtheria, that don't know what polio is, and they're being asked to take all of these vaccines that that have small risks but not no risks. And so this understanding of why they're taking that risk um, isn't real, isn't tangible. Um, as a paediatric nurse, uh, as a junior, you know, my first my first job was in a paediatric emergency department, and uh, I was reflecting with some friends the other day. Um, that I remember being drilled on the first day about diphtheria and that I wasn't to touch a, a child that came in with diphtheria. I was to go and get the anesthetist that that no one went near a diphtheria case. You left that child alone. I've never seen one, uh, despite working in low-income countries for for, for for many years and in pediatrics in, in, in Australia. And we, we're seeing outbreaks of diphtheria now in Australia that we haven't seen in many, many years. Um, and so this risk perception of not understanding what those diseases were, not seeing the impact that they can have. And then this real drive of people politicising misinformation about vaccines in particular and, and the conspiracy theories being driven around that. And so... We're we're up against it. We have this decreasing risk perception and we're we're having to advocate for and and explain diseases that whole generations have never seen, are still around and are still possible. And we're battling against this increased misinformation around the risks that vaccine poses. So it, it really is the perfect storm.
1: You're able to sort of talk very clearly about we're seeing diphtheria here, we're seeing polio there. Um, I'd like to get your perspective on reporting. I know it's a very boring topic reporting and surveillance. <laughs> no everybody's interested in talking about the political you know how is it that medicine and science has become politicized? We'll put that off for a few moments because it's such a, it's such a confusing hot topic and I like to I like to stay practical. in other words, we're not going to fix the partisan conversation of public health I think very quickly but uh, surveillance and reporting going back first to your uh, years in Africa, Western Africa with Ebola, and the collaboration that existed between the World Health Organization and the CDC. I I remember the reports very well, the two organizations really working super closely together uh, in terms of sharing the data uh, so that people could engage. And then, of course, um, with covid uh, we saw a, a bit of a breakdown in terms of different perspectives. Do we listen to CDC? Do we listen to WHO? Do we listen to uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb? Do we listen to this one? <laughs> you know, to your point, everybody has a mic. Everybody has a podcast. Everybody is a public health expert. Suddenly the, the system has kind of fragmented into you know countless pieces, but reporting and surveillance seems to have some form of conformity unity. Um, how important is it that we, we sort of like make sure that the surveillance system is solid and that we're not reacting? It seems like monkeypox, we had somewhat of a decent handle on what was going on initially. And then suddenly um, there seems to have been a bit of, I'll, I'll say it's sort of like um, confusion in the reporting. Do you mind talking a little bit about reporting surveillance and then um, who should have voice? on sharing data with us?
2: So I almost see them as two different things. I think what you're describing is reporting and, and data and then how that data is interpreted and acted on becomes political and there are opinions. Right. So, so maybe let, let's take the reporting and surveillance the, the, the surveillance is our eyes and ears. And I think, Increasingly important that we empower those frontline healthcare workers to be able to identify unusual events, report them quickly and, and have the tools to be able to um, to protect themselves and to protect their communities and to understand that they might see diseases that they haven't seen, whether they be novel or the first diphtheria case that, that walks through the door in a generation. Um, And to do that, we need to start at the front lines and empower frontline healthcare workers with clear case definitions. This is one of the challenges in terms of working out what it is that you're seeing. Remember, when we first see a disease, we don't always have lab results. Uh, We haven't had lab results for, for a lot of the monkeypox cases because of lack of testing. We have definitely a lack of testing for COVID. So It becomes a challenge to report cases based on case definitions, how that data flows up and is aggregated at the subnational and national level. And then to your point, how do we share that with international agencies? There's a huge amount of politics. We talked about taking the politics out of, of the discussion, but it's well and truly in the middle of surveillance, especially around data sharing. Um, I think some good examples from South Africa who really shared data very quickly during COVID and then were penalized with travel bans uh, for, for sharing or for, for notifying that they, they had new variants. So uh, as much as I would as a nurse in the trenches, like to take politics out of it, everything, you know, outside of that first one-on-one patient care starts to come in with governance rules and data rules and aggregation issues. And I think in West Africa, Ebola, as big as it was for three countries, we treated it as one outbreak and one data system. But as soon as we got out of that scenario and we're starting to look at COVID, you're talking about 192 countries that you're trying to coordinate with varying health uh, access and health systems uh, and, and access to those health systems. So For us, surveillance is the critical piece. We we can't control something if we don't know it's there. And and we've been advocating for a new global goal that we're calling 717. It's a simplification, a systems approach to what is a complex set of actions, but really encourages countries to focus on those skills that they need to be able to find an outbreak in seven days, report it effectively, whether that's to the US CDC or up to WHO in one day and start response in seven days. Now, to your point about the monkeypox, what happens with that data after that first 717, how we choose to act on that data um, has been variable. And and in some places we haven't acted quickly enough on the monkeypox. I think uh, we've struggled to to understand the vulnerability of the populations that were initially being affected and how those populations and their social behavior um, would uh, increase risk for spread. and and so I think understanding that we need multidisciplinary themes as part of surveillance, this isn't just about, you know, nurses finding outbreaks and epidemiologists describing outbreaks, but how do we use anthropologists, how do we use uh, communities to, to inform the way that we're interpreting that data and forming response options? And, and, and I think that's the other important part that you mentioned about COVID was response options. When we didn't know how to listen to US CDC or WHO, just because we know the number of something that's happening, we don't understand the context in, in which that number is happening and who's at risk and the different vulnerabilities there. And I think this is where um, there's a separate conversation to be had about improving surveillance systems and then improving coordination around response options.
1: You know, um, Resolve is a... Um, is a nonpartisan organization. I mean, you're, you're looking to engage as many players as possible. You're, you're um, apolitical, you're politically savvy. I mean, certainly you, you all have you know, sort of like public policy background and you know how the system uh, works or doesn't work, quite honestly. I, I think that some of us are, are starting to feel that the system is is not working as well as it might work or once did work. Um, and you no, know, you no. Know, certainly, we can we can opine on that. But Resolve and you specifically are doing a lot of things to raise awareness of issues. I know just a, a few months ago, you were you personally and the team were in the trenches talking about noncommunicable disease and particularly heart disease. And something you said to me once upon a time was that sometimes the health systems in developing nations like Africa are actually more responsive to public health information than behemoths that have a lot of infrastructure like the United States. And, um, you know, in my own experience when dealing with the countries like Senegal, um, I, I'm often pleasantly surprised at how receptive they are to best practices and ideas and the desire to mobilize community. There's a desire to do right. Um, and, and somehow or another here, uh, not that there isn't a desire to do right, but, but there seems to be a filter, um, an opaque filter of understanding and uh, we don't engage. Uh, could you share, not your frustration, but um, I'm sure there's some of that, but could you share a little bit about some of the successes that you've seen on the ground in terms of getting people to understand that heart disease is a real risk. Non-communicable disease is, is deadly just like um, no viral diseases. It's just that viral disease like COVID or monkeypox seems to consume, you know, the front pages of our newspapers. Where where heart disease, very serious, seems to be like, oh, I'll take care of that one day, uh, but not today.
2: Yeah, uh, that's a great question, and I'm not sure that I have a great answer in terms of the why. Um... And I'm sure there's people uh, putting a lifetime of study into how prioritisation with health systems and, and the politicisation of what we choose to, to elevate and what we choose not to elevate. And I think there's any number of syndromes and, and chronic diseases out there that get left behind. Uh, I think the long COVID case is, is a good example. This idea of chronic fatigue syndromes and, and long COVID that have been long ignored um uh, coming to the fore and and what puts something at the top of a community's um, priority list uh, i think in the case of senegal and a couple of the other countries that we've seen really take on and tackle non-communicable diseases uh, our, our our ceo dr tom frieden is in india actually this week working on cardiovascular hypertension work and and some of his feedback i think is is quite telling which is the introduction of cardiac and, and heart events are new to these communities. They haven't had the lifestyle issues that Western communities have had. And so I think as the introduction of a new virus into an environment like the U.S. sparks uh, action, the increasing plague of or epidemic of, of heart disease that is occurring in uh, low-income countries as lifestyle uh, factors um, catch up with the population, I think is a good trigger that this isn't normal. It's not normal for, for this many people to die of heart attacks. I think in the West, we, you know, heart attack is something that happens. It's not, you know, it's it's the way that people die. Um, and it is preventable. And I think we forget that, that there are changes that we can make. And I think too often in Western medicine, you know, patients are looking for the pill or the the surgery that can fix it, and and this is a balance. It's not always lifestyle changes, but it is a big part. Um, and I think governments in in Africa are seeing the economic impact of chronic disease, and they can ill afford to put that extra pressure uh, on their health systems and take that workforce out of uh, out of the economy. Um, and so, I think there's a strong economic uh, element also. To, to being able to prevent uh, the slide into non-communicable diseases that we see in a number of other societies.
1: You know, um, we could go on and on, and I would love to go on and on. Uh, and Amanda, I want to make an invitation to you and Resolve to Save Lives to come back onto the program. We have, we have a minute left, and I want to use that minute wisely. So tell me what, what is the priority on your agenda right now?
2: It's a good question. There's lots. My priority at the moment is to use the momentum that we have at the end of COVID to avoid the panic and neglect cycle again, that that we too quickly want to forget what has been a very difficult two and a half years for everyone. And this idea that that the pandemic is over is a real risk, not just to COVID, but monkeypox uh, and, and other viruses and, and issues that we're fighting. So the real priority for us now is not to forget the lessons that we've learned during COVID and to put us in a better position so this doesn't happen again.
1: I wanna thank you. Greg, I wanna thank you also for, for joining us today. Amanda McClellan, resolve to save lives. You are saving lives. Thrilled to have you on the program today. And again, an invitation, an open invitation to come back and share what you and
0: your colleagues are doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you, Gil. That's a wrap for today's broadcast. We want to thank our listeners for tuning in and our special guest, Amanda McClellan, Senior Vice President of Prevent Epidemics and Resolve to Save Lives. For more information or to follow Amanda's work at Resolve or Prevent Epidemics, go to www.resolvetosavelives.org or www preventepidemics.org and do follow on twitter via at resolve tsl or amanda via at amanda m-c-c-l-e-l-l-a and the number two you can learn more about health unabashed on the program page at HealthcareNowRadio.com. We air weekdays at 10.30 a.m., 6.30 p.m. and 2.30 a.m. Eastern or, for you left coasters, 7.30 a.m., 3.30 p.m. and 11.30 p.m. Pacific. Do keep the conversation going with Gil and me on Twitter by connecting with us via at gil underscore bash, and that's B-A-S-H-E, and Greg Masters MPH. And that's Greg with two G's. And do remember to tag your tweets with hashtag healthunabashed. Until next time, stay unapologetically passionate about improving health.